Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today we're talking about the Tyree Nichols case that has captivated the entire nation, this horrific incident. Also, immigration. And are we treating our immigrants in a way that is really unfair to the homeless and how we treat them? And then we'll talk a little bit about paid maternity leave. We've got uh, two young mothers with us on the show today. Joining us, we have Daniela Walls, host of The American System at americansystem.tv and national chair of a third party called the Tax Wall Street Party. And May Mailman, senior fellow at Independent Women's Law Center and former legal advisor to President Donald J. Trump. Daniela and May, welcome to the debate. Thank you, Andrew. Great to have you. So if you have turned on a TV in the last week, you know that the biggest topic that everybody's talking about is obviously this horrific incident that involved Tyree Nichols, in which he wound up being first pulled over for a traffic stop, given a series of basically unfollowably confusing commands, uh, wrestling with the police, gets up, runs away, later gets discovered and beaten horrifically in a way that winds up taking his life in the end. There's all kinds of parts of this that um, are, are worth talking about, but I think we ought to talk just a little bit about what law enforcement agencies, what police departments either have done, can do, should do to prevent something like this from happening. One of the more interesting and really frightening things that's come out in the last couple of days is that uh, the Memphis Police Department uh, lowered their hiring standards. They reduced the number of hours for whether you had to have an associate's degree or maybe not at all to have credit hours. Uh, they reduced the physical training test from a timed and a requirement to a just a recommendation. And um, they started offering bonuses to people, $15,000 uh, for the individual and then 5000 if you can bring friends on. Some of those were factors in the hiring of two of these officers. Uh, some of the others, it's not so clear about. But uh, let's start with you, May. Uh, thoughts about what police departments can do better, can do differently here. So, I mean, the problem is how do you support police but not support bad police, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the defund sort of movement was not really in the direction I think that's good for communities. And um, maybe this is highlighting the overly fund or, uh, you know, be overly friendly to police departments doesn't cure the problem of bad police. So I think for me, that's a unions issue. And I know that conservatives are very uh, hesitant to touch police unions, firefighter unions, um, because they tend to support conservatives. But I think just like teachers unions end up promoting bad teachers uh, in order to promote all teachers, I think police unions do the same thing. So I think, first of all, I am not in favor of public sector unions of any sort. I would disband or not allow public sector unions that includes police unions. Um, I know that includes ICE like that. That would include all public sector unions. And then, yes, hiring standards. What are you going to do if nobody wants to be a police officer right now? Then you you have to lower your standards. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about affirmative action. If you want um, a police force that looks a certain way or something like that, then you do end up picking on criteria that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. So that for me is a little bit more difficult of a question. So I, I think for me, the, the clearer thing to do would be to prohibit the unions. 
Very good. Uh, you know, uh, I kind of framed it, Daniela, with the hiring practices in mind, but feel free not to accept that framing. Your thoughts on what police departments could do or any thoughts about this just to kind of get us started when you saw that video? What did you think? Well, I was very much against the defund the police movement. I thought that was a big mistake for the left. And May laid it out perfectly. It's led to the situation we're in. I don't yet know all the facts of this Tyree Nichols case. I think more facts might be coming out still. I just watched the video of this brutal beating and I can report on what I saw. I can say that even if he wasn't following the commands, either because he couldn't hear, maybe he was on something. We, I, I don't know if that information has come out. Um, it doesn't justify that beating that I saw. So it in no way furthered any legitimate police action, right? And then, of course, you see groupthink or this horde mentality where one police officer doesn't feel confident, maybe because of the culture in that unit, or one officer might be using excessive force, right? And then that turns into multiple because somebody's not standing up. So these officers, I think they were in a special unit I had heard right. the Scorpion. Yeah. So these officers are in extremely high crime areas. And, you know, if they weren't in these high crime areas, they might not have gotten into this mentality. But there's another issue and it ties into this. And I think that we need to look at this on the left and the right, that we are in a reverse opium war. And right now we're all flying blind with no strategy. The drugs on the street these days are not the opiates prescribed by a doctor that we clamp down on. They're not your typical heroin or whatever was there, cocaine, right? You know, we're seeing, I don't know, fentanyl, right? PCP, bath salt. I, I'm not an expert on what there is. There used to be this old saying that uh, Keith Richards, right? He could use clean heroin and live a full life. Well, now we have this fentanyl crisis. There's videos all over social, social media of people acting completely insane and people think it's funny. I don't yeah, like it. I mean, it, puts, it puts police in kind of an, an impossible situation, yeah. right? They're, they're personally mm -hmm. at risk from contact of the, of the, the fentanyl, for example. Right. You never know what to expect when you pull up to a car. And, and by mm -hmm. the way, in no way, in no way trying to excuse what happened in this particular case. Abs but absolutely there's, there's not. A, absolutely there's a context not. that you operate in, mm -hmm. right? Right. That absolutely not does not excuse that video I saw. Nothing excuses that. That was criminal. But we're in a situation where people on PCP are jumping onto the hood of other people's cars at the grocery store. So I, I just want people to realize that we need to take a look at this reverse opium war and we might need to take a hard look at the war on drugs. I think that that ties into this because I've noticed in a lot of these police brutality cases where it ends horribly. It came out later that people were on these synthetic drugs like fentanyl or PCP or basalt. And just, and just to be clear, yeah. in, in this particular case, there's been no evidence of that. There's okay. been no uh, reporting that any of that was the case. But again, you know, in talking about the context, uh, May, when I first watched the video, and I have a, a lot of you know law enforcement friends, I mean, I talk to our local sheriffs every week, and uh, they had the same reaction, which is, 
sometimes we talk about uh, law enforcement making an arrest and having training and then certain tactics like chokeholds or use of baton kind of how should you use them or should you use them and how can they go wrong? This to me didn't look like that. Uh, and all of my law enforcement friends said the same thing. This was just a beating. There was no even effort at law enforcement tactics here. It wasn't like sort of close to the training with a few excessive things. It was completely different than what you expect to see when properly trained uh, police officers are making an arrest. So is it a training gap? Is there better tactics or better governance from even the federal government that should be guiding this? What did you think? More guidance from the federal government. I, I really do not see how that's going to help. Every city that's under a consent decree from the federal government, for example, New Orleans, just has crime spiraling out of control. So uh, I don't think that we've seen evidence that increased federal oversight is going to be better for the police or better for the community. Um, but I think you're right. There was nothing here that seemed like oh, wow, they really should have just used a different hold tactic or they used pepper spray in this way when they should have used it in that way. These were not minor adjustments. This looked like an attack. It looked like several people attacking somebody. And that's why, and I know that Newsweek has not been able to verify it, but there are rumors circulating in uh, Memphis that this was targeted, that there was a ex-girlfriend of one of the cops who was a current girlfriend of uh, Tyree Nichols. And so the <clears throat> cop sort of knew where he lived and, and followed him and attacked him there. As Newsweek said, un unverified, but it's not surprising that that is the rumor going around Memphis right now, because that would at least bring some sense to this very senseless beating. Yeah, it's so inexplicable when you watch it. It just seems, I mean, it's brutality without any explanation. Even the the initial stop seemed so. They're running in there threatening him from the jump with, you know, what looks nothing like a normal routine traffic stop to me. I'm glad May brought that up really quickly just because that's why I had said not all the facts have come in on this case. I also read those rumors and there's a lot of things like that that look strange to me. It looked like mo mo most definitely. And and I'm glad you had both brought up the, the question of, you know, how do you hire in this environment? You know, one of the challenges, uh, you know, Memphis PD is down 500 cops. They reported last year. They're short 500 police officers in a community that has an excessive number of homicides every year. You know, I know the county that I live in, they have uh, twice as many people in Memphis as my county and 10 times as many homicides last year. Like you just seem to have this policing problem combined with low recruitment and you wind up lowering your standards and then you turn around and you have you can barely get enough cops to begin with and the ones you are getting, you know, what quality, what training, what accountability can you put in place for them? How can law enforcement agencies that are facing this solve that problem? Do you think there is a way to solve it, Daniela? We're still in a period of recovery from a bunch of disastrous, I wouldn't call them policies, but uh, proclamations like defund the police. Where, where did that come from? I don't know anybody with sense who is into that. It seemed like a bunch of white anarchists. I never, I never did an interview with anybody in the black community that was for such a thing. The only people that I saw for this were young kids. And we are following the slogans of a bunch of young anarchist kids into oblivion. And at a certain point, the adults need to take over. How that was allowed to enter the Democratic Party is something to even debate. 
we're recovering from a lot of bad things that have happened in the last few years, a lot of bad policy. One of the things I know when I first watched this video and was thinking about this case, and obviously the most notable thing everybody sees immediately is it's five black officers as opposed to white officers. And we know that uh, anyone with common sense recognizes that announcing the charges immediately prior to the release of the video, prior to the identification, there, there were a lot of things that the MPD did to kind of get out ahead of this and how that affected public response to it. But I, I also have questions about the push to try to hire police officers that look like the community. That seems like a very common sense kind of thing that you want people who look like those that they're policing and representing. But I also hear law enforcement officers tell me that sometimes the black officers are the ones who have the hardest time because the community views them as traitors or people who are, you know, helping the enemy uh, when the white officers are just, well, they're the white officers. Do you guys think, I'll start with you, Maid, do you think there's value in trying, deliberately trying to hire representative police officers? I'm not one much for tokenism, so I'd rather just have the uh, a police force filled with the best officers, no matter what they look like, uh, no matter where they grew up. That said, um, I think you're right. There's sort of should be uh, police officers who look like the community they serve. I think when you look at Border Patrol, Border Patrol is very often Hispanic. They're people who live on the border um, and sort of understand the situation that they're working with. And so you would want, I think, similarly, police who understand the communities uh, that they're working with. That said, I think a, a push to just have looks. I mean, when has that worked effectively. I don't I don't think it does. And so what you want to do this all I think a lot of the problem is, no, you're never going to be able to recruit police officers if you are hiring for impossible situations. You're never going to. So the way to recruit police officers is to improve our communities. And how do we improve our communities? That is, I think you have to focus on families. You have to focus on drugs on the streets. You have to focus on uh, education. You have to focus on helping kids. All of these things, you have to improve the community before you're ever going to be able to recruit uh, police officers. And when you improve the community, then you will have people who look all sorts of different ways, who want to give back to their community because they enjoyed it. They like it. They had a good experience there. Yeah, we certainly have a, a comprehensive problems in a lot of cities in the United States. And you know, uh, one of the pushes in the last couple of years has been for what's called community policing, right? Where the law enforcement officers are sp deliberately supposed to get out, to meet the people, to know their beats, to engage themselves with the community. And it ranges from all sorts of things like movie nights to, you know, food and visiting schools and, you know, just trying to have a more of a relationship with the community instead of the guys who show up with the lights blaring and the guns drawn whenever there's a problem. And, that effort is, you know, that's that's the standard for police agencies. Uh, the question is, is that enough? You know, is uh, and, and of course, those are also going to address some of the social ills to some degree because you're helping people. But that building of relationships may even be a little bit short. Danielle, we'll give you the final word on this topic. Uh, anything uh, this, you want to say? This was a big issue that I dealt with and confronted, worked on about 10 years ago in New York City. You had uh, police officers that were coming in from Long Island white police officers into Brooklyn and Harlem and Queens and black neighborhoods, right? And they were coming in as outsiders. 
and they were really amped up and there was a lot of there were there were a lot of um problems so the, this idea came that maybe the officers would be more trusted and they would be more friendly and softer if they came from within inside the community yeah. and there is a reality to that but i think what may said is very important that you're not going to police your way out of this and i also don't believe in tokenism i think i believe in hiring the best person for the job we've got to find the best people but uh this is going to have to be dealt with at the economic level and at the the level of the family the cultural level etc so we we're, we're going to have to as a country start to really get to these root causes there's always going to be a new disaster on television how do we get ourselves out of the police seeing the community as not the enemy. Yeah, no, it, it's all fair. If we don't fix our uh, basically what I sometimes refer to as the sort of the production pipeline for citizens, you know, if we're not making mm. good citizens and if we're not making good communities, then, you know, hiring 10 times as many police is not going to solve the problems that that's going to create. When we right. come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about immigration, particularly a piece that May has written for us here at Newsweek on the debate. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman, joined today by Daniela Walls and May Mailman. Uh, May, you wrote a piece for Newsweek talking about the, well, outrage, <laughs> frankly, about some of the things that are being done uh, in terms of funding and quality of life issues, maybe you'd say, for uh, certain immigrants into the country. Why don't you tell people a little bit about what you're writing about? Yeah, so uh, this is about Mayor Adams' request, and now he has visited the border, so he's definitely trying to make himself a face uh, for immigration, and he wants a fix. He wants uh, help in dealing with the migrants, but what does he want? He wants, at the time I wrote the piece, it was $1 billion, and now that is $2 billion. And he has been very specific that he wants the federal government to pay for all of it, and in his opinion, that's going to help. My piece says, no, that's not going to help. That's going to make it worse because there's always going to be a flow of people who want free New York housing, uh, free New York food, the free New York experience. And that's exactly what they're getting. So this cry for help is in completely the wrong direction. And as long as he keeps asking for money and the federal government has given money, has given millions of dollars from an account meant for homeless Americans. So homeless Americans are on the street. And uh, we had like that 
extreme cold snap. Hundreds of homeless Americans die every year on the streets. That money is going to house migrants, not just in New York, but in other cities. Um, and my piece says these sort of requests, these sort of fixes are going to make it worse. If New York actually cared, then what they would do is they would join with the conservative states in trying to force the Biden administration to make some real changes to our southern border. You know, it's interesting, uh, Daniela, is I think the southern states, uh, which I live in one, you know, I live in Florida and Texas, thought that, uh, well, if we can simply shove this problem to some of these more sanctuary oriented kind of places, they'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. And instead, as uh, May writes, in this case, it was, you know, triple down on the claims and the requests for help. Do you see the immigration problem as uh, largely a product of what's available to people when they come here, whether through social services or something else? So, yeah, I I read Miss Mailman's article and um, I have here. Here are a few of my reactions and then I can get into more detail. We have a government right now that is spending tons of money, useful money, badly in the wrong places, in my opinion. And then I would like to say, too, uh, where I disagree is America's biggest strategic advantage in the 21st century battle of these superpowers is that people want to come here. In order to stop this, we need to end the war on drugs and build a strong-minded alternative to this disaster because it's creating the refugees and it's killing Americans. And then, of course, there's decades of bad economic policy. So... I want to talk really quickly about how we're spending money badly because I think that's a topic. May was discussing rearranging the migrants and the homeless between hotels. And I mean, this is ludicrous. I mean, that we have to choose between helping one or the other, the migrants or the homeless. And in the article, it says that Adams, right, he got uh, one billion to... Uh, reimburse his expenses for housing 1,700 migrants. Now, how the hell are these state governments spending these billions and trillions that are coming out of the federal government? You see this in LA and San Francisco with the homeless, where, I mean, I might be making this figure up, but it's you'll, you'll see that like they spent $50,000 on a tent. And It's just incomprehensible to me that with the amount of money coming out of the federal government that we don't have, one, like we should have state-of-the-art rehab facilities, state-of-the-art mental facilities, bring back the mental facilities, abundant, affordable housing. Down on the border, with all this money, there should be soaring glass and steel assimilation facilities that employ tens of thousands of people. And yes, and the left has got to stop. They're going to lose it with assimilation facilities. They're going to think it's tantamount to colonialism. You strip people of their culture. It's like another thing with the defund the police. You know what I mean? Oh, you can't, you can't take homeless off the street. Yeah, enforce the vagrancy laws. I have a man who's schizophrenic that sleeps in my doorway in 20 degree weather. There's nobody for me to call yeah. and there, because there's nowhere for him to go. And this is the nation's capital, Andrew. I mean, D.C. has tons of money and I look at the city budget and where they're spending it and it's not on any of the crucial stuff first. And if anybody on the left or the right, I guess, thinks it's better for this man with mental illness to sleep on the streets in 22 degree weather instead of having three meals a day in a mental facility, they're inhumane. So 
we need a ruthless auditing office in D.C. to see where all this money is being spent. We keep passing these trillion dollar bills. They're going out the door and you'll see some pipes replaced here and some things here. But I'm I'm like I'm saying, where's the Lincoln Tunnel? Where's the Hoover Dam? Let's go, people. We should have in every state different facilities and 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 state of the art facilities for for rehab, mental facilities, affordable housing. Let the social workers workers sort it out where people go. No, I I understand your frustration, and you know mm-hmm. uh, I know May and part of what you're writing about here is, and you sp- you said it a moment ago that we have funds that are available for homeless uh, American citizens. And we turn around and are using those funds to provide, I think the figure you gave was about a three or $400,000 tent with Xbox and food. And I watched, I looked at this facility that they built for these uh, immigrants in New York City. And I thought, not quite, but that rivals some of my early vacations. <laughs> you know, like I can see why they're, they're, they love it. They're living it up. And there's a part of me that thinks, well, look, if we're going to have a facility that they're going to be housed in, it ought to be humane and decent. But the frustration here is, as I think Danielle is pointing out, why can't we provide? I mean, if we're going to be providing things, why can't we provide decent things for the homeless that are all around us and with us all the time? And instead, we're shelling out major amounts of money to provide facilities for people who come here illegally or at least are uncertain status. Maybe they're refugees, but it's uncertain. Right. Right. So, you know, and this is indefinite stays, too. So the Biden administration has refused to sort of expedite the processing of migrants under expedited removal. Instead, they're either using Title 42, which they've already asked not to use, um, but Title 42 doesn't sort of stamp people with disapproval so they can keep coming back to America over and over and over again. And one day uh, they're just going to get in. So Title 42, I know it's it's good in the sense that it actually turns people away, but it's not good in the sense that it's not effective. And then you've got actual removal proceedings, um, which if you get stamped with a removal proceeding and then you come back in, that's a felony. So you're going to go to jail before you're you're removed. I mean, it's much more likely that you're going to be stopped at the border. So the Biden administration is not using their, their border tools efficiently. So then what do you get? You end up just having them hang out homeless in cities all across America. And I think it's rich that New York City is complaining about their 30,000 migrants of the 5 million border crossings uh, since Biden took office. So we we feel for New York and their 30,000. Um, but if you think about the, um, the money that uh, Adams is asking for at the time, it was about $175,000 per migrant family of three, if he's doubled that request to two billion, then that's three hundred thousand dollars per migrant family of three. And yeah, nobody's saying that you need to put migrants in some sort of you know, there are actually court cases where they put a bunch of migrants in the bottom of a swimming pool that was empty, like and, and just held them there. And that these court cases are sort of why we now have a very slow immigration system because, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And all of the court cases piled up, piled up. And so you can't do anything and you're really uh, stuck. But you you really do need to stop the pull factor, which is, hey, if you come here, we will house you in New York for free. We will give you an Xbox for free and we will never ask you to leave. That pull factor is what has to change. 
And I love what you said, Daniela, early on, where you mentioned that one of our greatest uh, strategic uh, advantages and in international perception, whatever you want to call it, is our prosperity, because yeah. we can literally look at the world and say, this is what it looks like when you do it right. Follow us. Here are the principles you can implement and you can have prosperity like we have. The flip side is, of course, oh, well, we'll just go there. <laughs> you know, that's that's not the answer, right? Well, that's not exactly what I was I wasn't saying I, that uh, a lot of our prosperity, right, is because of immigrants. I was saying that that it, enough, it, was, it was our strategic advantage in the world. And this is one part where I'm going to disagree with you guys, because I don't think that this is the occasion to be vindictive or focus on something like an Xbox. I didn't see the facility that these people were living in. I don't know the circumstances. Maybe it was a hotel you know, so it looked great. Maybe Microsoft donated some do-gooders over at Microsoft donated some Xboxes boxes. And there was talk about them having free internet. I mean, they, they, we live in a world of internet. The, they need internet in order to find, process their paperwork and where to go. So this is not conveyed enough in the United States. And this is, I think, very overlooked. What is the greatest advantage of the United States? The real trump card for the United States it's that people from Latin America and Central America and elsewhere, they want to come here. And, you know, industrious, energetic people want to come and work. And that is actually our most important natural resource. And we can't dilapidate that resource. I mean, imagine if all of these neighbors from Latin America wanted to go to Russia. We would be having a debate today about how could we attract immigrants. If I just disagree with that so mm -hmm. much, though, right? Because, okay. I mean, if you I, I would say that what what are the great things that have come out of America and how would that be different if somehow we weren't attached to Mexico? I don't think I don't think it would. One of the great things I think about our nation is our court system, for example. I think that in our court system, you have a, a real shot at justice. Not every time does it work, but it's orderly. Uh, you have an opportunity to be heard. So that's a real structure of America that is one of, I mean, it's the greatest in the world. That has nothing Absol to do absolutely, with absolutely. And that's why, and that's why refugees are coming to the United States because of our system of laws. Because if you're ever in a, in a third world country, there is no law. It's run by gangs and you can be killed for $500. So that's not I would to be funny. America, I mean, Mm -hmm. It's not it's it's greatness is completely independent of having a 2000 mile land border with Mexico. I mean, I, I don't think that our connection with Central and South America, I don't think it's bad by any means, but it is a strategic weakness for America that we are the only country in the entire world that shares a 2000 mile land border with a third world country. No other country in the world has to deal with fentanyl coming over its border like we do. Now, I'm not right. saying that every person in Central and South America is a drug dealer or is somehow bad. And, and we should have an immigration system that rewards merit-based immigration, not even merit-based immigration, uh, people who are just contribute in, in uh, any sort of way that we need. But uh, I would say that America's greatness comes from a lot of our culture that you actually lose 
when you have too much multiculturalism, and I come at that from somebody whose mom is not uh, from the Western tradition, you know, I'm half Korean, but that there is a an aspect of American industriousness, sort of cowboy Western style industriousness that really does not have to do anything with immigration from the South. Well, I think if I read Daniela, your comment was that productive people who create more than they destroy or take are a resource that we benefit from. I mean, we we all raise children to get them into that situation so that they can contribute to our economy and make the life better. And people who come here wanting to take advantage of the freedom uh, that we have available and other benefits. And our system of laws. And our system of laws. Yeah, all of that, right. Right, if, if, few- if we can get those people to come here, that's a win for us, uh, as opposed to, as you say, t- sending them to somewhere else. That I'm just that. saying factually, that's always been the strategic advantage of the United States, that people from everywhere. And I'm not just saying uh, South America want to come here. Uh, May raised a lot of points. So I just want to kind of run through them before I forget what she said said. I object to the when I watch um sort of right wing news. I don't I don't want to I don't like to use labels anymore. When I watch the news, they often conflate fentanyl coming across the border, and it is. But fentanyl, just such a small amount of fentanyl can do so much damage. It might be coming across the border, but if it's not going to come across the border, it's going to come in private planes. It's going to come in cargo ships. It's going to come in people's purses and commercial airlines. I don't know what what the thing numbers are, but you can kill what like fifty thousand people with uh, prescription bottle size of fentanyl. So they keep saying the reason we need to close the border is fentanyl. You are not going to stop fentanyl coming across the border. That's why I said we need to end the war on drugs. And this is an issue. The Republicans tend to tighten the screws on the war on drugs, and I think we have to reverse course. And this is a this is a policy that I did a 180 on because for a long time I didn't want to legalize drugs in this country at all because I thought Americans were stupefied enough and I didn't like what I saw with the legalization of marijuana but when you're trying to save one person from possibly opi- uh, overdosing on heroin and you have 50 people dying from bullets from wars in the streets so the fentanyl is one thing I don't think fentanyl and the border correlate because fentanyl is so small, it can come in from anywhere. That's my point. And the other point was the multiculturalism. Um, right here uh, in the D.C. suburbs, there's a place called Gaithersburg, and it's the most diverse city in the world. It's a population of about, it's, a, it's just a little suburb, but it's a population of 69,000 people. And if you look at the demographics, it's like 1% from you know a bunch of countries you don't even know the names of, right? But it's a low, there's a low crime rate and people get along and people seem to thrive in that environment, you know, best restaurants, different food. Multiculturalism is good in this environment. Why? Because it's also the highest average income, higher than Silicon Valley. It's a lot of, it's the biotech corridor, right? So when people have a high income and a high education, suddenly these problems of multiculturalism tend to disappear or they become an advantage. You have a bunch of interesting restaurants. You have a bunch of interesting friends. So I uh, don't agree that America is just a culture. I sometimes don't understand who's 
the American culture, what is that, hot dogs and stuff? Like, you know, I, I think it's, oh, I think it's, well, the it's, one, it's yeah. women's rights, you know, it is uh, self-sufficiency, it is respect for the rule of law. It's things that if you went to a different non-Westernized country, one that, you know, is our country did not does not have roots in, they don't always respect the same sort of ideals that we do. And uh, as people who are from a tradition that is sort of reflective in the Declaration of Independence, that we as human beings have these certain inalienable rights. That's what I mean by the American. Uh, okay. I totally get what you're saying now. Okay, I understand. So I want to pose this question to the right because, again, I don't like calling myself of the left, but we could not ask for a more optimal group of migrants if we're talking about people coming across the southern border from Central and South America. In general, if we're talking about Central and South America, right? So there's almost no difference between us, really. Yes, they have brown skin, but there's they're Christian we have a very close language. They're attracting a lot of ire, you know, from reactionaries. But this is all within the bounds of Western civilization. My God, this is Spanish and Latin Christianity. And may I could totally understand if we were had five million people coming here who I don't know what were into widow burning. You know, you throw well, the think, wife, on a, wife see, on a funeral and, and pyre. You see, you see that a lot when when you look at the kinds of occupations and the kinds of businesses that uh, particularly uh, Hispanic immigrants come and participate in. Uh, you see a lot of the things that you know May is talking about in terms of thrift and work and productivity and service. And so, yeah, I, I see a lot of that as well. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. It's something that um, both of you have in common in terms of your uh, your new uh, newfound motherhood, and yet how that impacts on things like maternity leave, something that in America we have really struggled with how to figure out what to provide in this regard. But I want to get both of your thoughts on that when we come back on the debate. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the debate, and uh, I got lucky today. We didn't have this on our original rundown sheet of what we were thinking we would talk about, but it turns out that, May, you have a... 10-month-old, I think you said, and Daniela ten has... Uh, ten, oh, that's right, 10-week-old. And Daniela has a, uh, a about a one-year-old. Both of you right. first-time mothers. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, both of you dealing with all of the fun and the exhaustion <laughs> that goes along with that. But it brought up in our uh, conversation before we got started recording about both of you and the paid leave. And so I just wanted to ask uh, for a minute for you to talk a little bit about 
how much leave you got, how that affected your ability to be productive and to be a new mom, and your thoughts about what we ought to be doing in this country in that regard. Let's start with you, May, because you have the the youngest. We'll go in that order. Yeah. So um, I know the trend right now is to have, I think like Silicon Valley Netflix gives a year, Amazon gives five months, that sort of thing. So uh, it's, it's getting popular to have longer maternity leaves that are paid for by the employer. Um, but I had a four week leave also paid for by my employer. Um, and that was only at 70% pay. So I'm definitely at the oh, wow. lower end that said, you know, it's not, it's not nothing. And like, we all survived it. And I have a husband, he continued to work. So like, there was a lot of structure built up. That's helpful to me. But you know, I think there's a really, there's the comparison that a lot of American women uh, like to make and are faced with because our neighbors to the north. So in Canada, they have not employer funded, but government funded as if there is a government has money sure. and, and funds things, but um, government funded, which is actually just employer funded because employers pay into this as they would uh, unemployment. And you can choose to either do 12 months at a little bit higher amount per month, or you can do 18 months. So you get a year or a year and a half off and you get paid maybe something like $30,000. It's not, you're not going to be get rich off of maternity leave in, uh, in Canada. So, I guess I'm in favor of it in the sense that we pay a ton, ton, ton of money to end of life care. So the amount of money that we spend on Medicare or in the last one month, two months of somebody's life is yeah. astronomical. And to say that we can't pay that amount actually at the beginning of someone's life when they are just as helpless, but actually have a full life left to live. I would make that switch, honestly. Like, sorry to the olds, but um, I would make that switch. <laughs> sorry um, to the olds. I love that. <laughs> so, Dan, Daniela, your your experience with a one-year-old and also, you know, maternity leave. And I don't know what you think ought to be done or how it could be done better, because this is an area where we're clearly behind in terms of offering a social service, uh, right. especially to Canada and certainly towards a lot of other places. So we, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about immigration and how that, you know, can build us up for a strategic advantage, right? A demographic advantage. We right now in the United States have record low birth rates. We are in decline, right? So I am a, couldn't be more for helping people have families. I think this includes two things. I just read an article recently that minorities are getting 0% loans on first-time homes. That needs to extend to everybody. Enough of this division. If you are not a homeowner, I strongly believe that that same discount window at the Federal Reserve where they give 0% loans to Wall Street banks, every American should have a first-time home because without a home, you cannot have a family. That is a key lesson that I have learned from this. The second somebody gets a home, they want to fill it. Nobody's having kids in studio overpriced studio apartments. We need to get real practical here real quick. And we we need to do everything we can to help build families. And I think this is an issue where women on the left and the right need to come together and make some demands. And, you know, this is the cognitive health of the next generation. What happens in the first year and during pregnancy cannot be repaired. And if you have a very stressful pregnancy and you're on your feet the entire time and you're racing around at a job, throwing a Snickers bar in your mouth instead of a good organic meal or whatever, you know, I'm 
I don't want to sound airy fairy. I'm just saying you've, we're trying to build the brains of the next generation. And we, we see evidence all around us that if a mother does not have the proper prenatal care or prenatal atmosphere, look what's going on all around us. Yeah. In our particular case, you know, uh, when we started having children, when my wife uh, first got pregnant, you know, she stayed at her job until uh, she didn't need to be there anymore. And then she stayed home forever after that, precisely Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, she believed and rightly so that those first months at the very least and, you know, in our case ongoing, uh, that was essential for developing them. So the flip side of this one, play devil's advocate for uh, just a second is your your business owners and your business leaders are going to say something like this. That all sounds fine. It is clearly essential and vital to make sure that kids get what they need in their in the early months, that moms get what they need in the early months. And uh, women staying home from work in order to take care of their young children is a vastly important social good. But who should pay for it? And businesses will say, uh, okay, you know, you complain that women make less money. Here's an example of, you know, we don't have to deal with this with the man. The man doesn't have to stay home with the child. How do you answer that objection or how do you solve for that problem, May? So employers just, they're not going to come out and say it. Oh, I didn't hire you because you're a woman of childbearing age. But if they are reasonable, which in capitalism, businesses are reasonable, they're not going to hire women of childbearing age. They just aren't. Like, imagine if you had a, a hospital and all the nurses got a year off you would no longer have a hospital. You would have people dying in the hospital because there would be no nurses. So that's just a reality. So having these very long extended maternity leave policies will be harmful to businesses uh, hiring women. So I think the thing that actually needs to change, I would say a couple of things. One is a social stigma. Some women work, not because they are the breadwinners of their household, they probably could cut and make it work. I mean, daycare is very, very expensive and and they could stay home. But that question, what do you do? I mean, a lot of our self-worth comes from work. And I think that that has been built up over the past decades that you really have to work in order to do something to, to say that you are somebody. So I would just say like, it's okay to not hire women and women, it's okay to not work. Um, And then the second thing is we've a lot of times been talking about that crucial time at the beginning of a child's life. So what my proposal would be is that women should feel free. And I know that money is always an issue, but um, if you had hopefully fewer women in the workforce, then men could get paid more. And, you know, as a couple, maybe you would be able to make the same amount of money, school choice, a lot of other things would have to change. And Then when women wanted to go back into the workforce, I would treat the time off uh, with their kids almost like veterans preference. So you were at war for five years. We're going to basically credit you and, and assume that you worked for those five years as you come back. I think something like that businesses wouldn't have to be weighing women on their payroll and figuring out you'd just be completely out of the workforce. And then when you come back, those five years away aren't working against you in some way. Yeah, we. I mean, we definitely have a uh, sort of tensions, right? On the one hand, like you said, women feel the pressure to be working for social status or just feeling right about their lives. But also uh, when you don't work, you lose your abilities, right? You know, you're constantly doing the thing that keeps you good at doing the thing. If you take a year or two or three off, you're going to come back lesser able than you were before, unless some weird unnatural miracle happens in your capabilities. And so that's a problem too, is uh, if women do want to reintegrate to the workforce after an extended period of time, how do you help them be 
even more productive, you know, or at least as productive as they were when they left. Danielle, I'll give you the kind of the final word on this. Who should pay for this? And how do you remedy that problem of businesses are made less productive by the fact that women are going to take time off to take care of their kids? A very important thing, but still it has an impact on business. Well, I think you know what I'm going to say. Wall Street should pay. Wall Street pays no taxes. And I'm sometimes amazed when I hear people, not not you guys here, but, you know, say like uh, talk about where are we going to get the money or is this legal when we let Wall Street get away with murder? We've just had decades of absolute illegality and extraction from Wall Street, bailing them out to the tune of trillions of dollars a year from the Federal Reserve. That didn't stop in 2008 when we gave them the 700, what was a billion that continued on to the tune of trillions, sometimes a trillion a month to bail these guys out on Wall Street. So suddenly we've discovered the rule of law in regard to people who are like helpless and persecuted like the immigrants. And then suddenly, you know, women having children, how are we going to pay for this? So if we want to start a society of paying for stuff and where to pay, we better start with Wall Street and then work our way down instead of the other way around and saying, well, we just don't have the money for mothers who need to take a maternity leave. We just don't have the money for these homeless people. Like these are pennies. These are just drippings off the table compared to what's being extracted. So we would be here for six hours if I got into the platform, but you can go to TWSP.us. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Well, Daniela Walls and uh, May Mailman, very interesting conversation. I'm particularly glad we got a chance to talk about uh, maternity leave uh, because I had not anticipated that, but it turns out to be a very fascinating stuff. Again, congratulations to both of you on your your younglings. And uh, I certainly uh, appreciate, you know, I saw it with my first hand with the three kids that uh, my wife and I raised. But uh, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, thanks for joining us for a good conversation. We'll see you next time on The Debate at Newsweek. Newsweek.